Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. Feels like a while since we've recorded and it's been a, it's kind of simultaneously been a lot going on and not much going on in the world of IndyCar at the moment, but uh, I'm alongside Jael Hildebrand, who I'm assuming is, uh, you're still licking your wounds in the Super Bowl uh, fiasco, which was uh, unfortunate for you. But uh, yeah, how do you feel about that whole thing? Was were you, were you kind of, did you go in with low expectations so you weren't that bothered afterwards or was it kind of like, you kind of got your hopes up a little bit and thought it might be possible. Uh, I definitely felt it was doable. Um, yeah, me too. I actually thought 49ers might win it, but yeah. I felt like we, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was, t- I mean, it was obviously a, 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 a good matchup in terms of just like relative in, in different ways, but evenly competitive teams, um, you know, right to the end. So just a bummer. I was talking, there's, there's this, uh, there's a meme in 49er country that's, the i don't remember what the mascot's name is but like you know the gold the gold 49ers guy like you know like kind of looking up at the the golden gate bridge and there's a rainbow over his head and it just says i want to die <laughs> and, and i feel like that was just very much like that circulated a, a lot uh, yeah on sunday on sunday evening because it, it really is like would you rather get to the Super Bowl and lose? And this has happened for the Niners like yeah, a lot of times. You know, three times in kind of relatively recent memory, yeah. or just be like kind of mediocre. I don't know. I don't, I'm not really sure which one's better or worse, but uh, yeah, a bummer for sure. You've still got Steph Curry making some amazing shots for the Golden State Warriors, so that can at least appease you for. for oh, that. but then you. I mean, then you've also got like, are we just totally wasting? Yep. You are like the greatness of <laughs> Steph Curry right now, too. Like, I'm not sure that that's actually making it any better. No, in in isolation of watching purely Steph Curry play, it it is. It's a positive. Yeah, yeah. That's that's how you have to. That's how you have to look at it. Anyway, enough uh, other sports talk because we have IndyCar going on at the moment. There's a a few little things bubbling under the surface. I guess we're we're still waiting for for Dale Coyne to confirm both of their drivers at the point of recording, which is the thirteenth of February. Uh, we also wish our best to David Lucas, who's having some some hand surgery after a mountain bike accident. Um, we don't want to speculate too much about what that means for for the future until his surgery and um, what might happen there. Um, we'll have to keep our eyes on that one as that story uh, kind of develops in the meantime jr we've got a very exciting episode coming up for people to listen to with angela ashmore so anytime you get a chance to have a ganassi engineer on the show is always a, a lovely opportunity to fire some cool uh, engineering related uh, questions uh, angela also um, according to indycar is the fourth uh, lead female engineer in indycar history as well so um we're we're going to head over to angela have a, a chat with her about her kind of 
um, how she got into motorsport at first and also uh, how she's ended up in her current role at Ganassi, but also a little bit about uh, women in motorsport and uh, the kind of um, the feeling she's got from, from IndyCar as well. So um, I don't mind saying, because it's not anything to do with me, but it's an absolutely fantastic interview. Uh, Angela's really uh, candid and really, uh, really brilliant on, on everything that she's kind of been through and what's coming up for her as well this season. So without further ado, we'll head over and speak to Angela now. All right, Angela Ashmore, thank you for joining us on the Race IndyCar podcast. Really nice to have you here. And you've got a big new role this year looking after uh, Marcus Armstrong. And, and knowing Marcus quite well, you're going to have your work cut out. He's a, he's a bundle of fun to, to work with, so you're going to have a, a lot of fun there. Yeah, like I said, thanks for joining us. And um, I guess I just wanted to get a little bit into your background to start with and, and find out a little bit more about you and how you ended up in in IndyCar, I guess um, I've read before that I think your dad and an uncle competed when when you were younger and you were able to kind of watch them um, compete. But when did you kind of identify motorsport as something that you wanted to get into and, and also engineering as well? When did that kind of, um, you know, when did that come up for you? Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, we'll just jump right into it. So how I get into racing, um, we were just fans watching on TV. My dad um, really enjoyed watching NASCAR. And so um, I was a little daddy's girl. And so I would just watch on Sundays um, with him. We'd watch on TV and we had a local short track, Berlin Raceway. Um, so we'd get to go every once in a while um, down to our local short track. It was a 7 16th mile, which is very specific distance. Um, 7 16th mile, uh, uh, concrete track. And um, absolutely loved going to the racetrack. And so I knew really young that I loved racing. I wanted to make it my life, um, had no idea how I was going to make that happen. I thought for sure I was going to be a race car driver. Um, and then I, I got a little older and wiser, um, got to be high school age and realized, you know, I'm not a professional athlete, but, um, I do have a good head on my shoulders. Um, very good at math and science, analytical mind, so I was really well suited to engineering. It was a natural fit for me. So I decided kind of at that point that that was going to be my path to make motorsports a career um, was to go get an engineering degree. So um, went to Purdue, got my master's degree in uh, mechanical engineering and um, actually didn't find a job in racing straight out of school. The motorsports industry was um, kind of in a bad spot when I graduated. So I went and worked at an OEM for a few years until I could um, find a spot to get in. It was like 2008, roughly, like when you graduated. So it was like right around that difficult period where some of the teams like yeah. scaling down and stuff like that. Yeah. It was um, 2010 when I graduated and it was, you know, half the half the paddock was laid off. So I didn't think it was a great time to be coming in as um, someone with no experience. I'm curious, just to jump in for a second. Um, when you were, so you talked about, you know, sort of your experience going through high school, having been around racing, having seen it a lot at the short track, like, was that sort of like super modifieds and super late models? Like what was, what was the style of racing that you were growing up? Just cause I'm curious. Yeah. I think the biggest thing at our track was, um, super late models. And like once a year, they might have a special event where you'd get like one or two NASCAR drivers would come and, and drive, you know, super modified, super late models. Um, but the big show was always super late models. Okay. So you'd, you'd watch the four cylinders go around and, um, stuff like that. And, that Berlin has kind of um, grown over the years and they actually have brought World of Outlaws and they um, convert the track to dirt now once a year. Um, so 
the scope of racing there has has increased a lot since when I was growing up. But when I was growing up, it was just local short track guys that were that were racing. Yeah, that's cool. So, but when so you grew up kind of around this, and and I had maybe a little bit of a similar experience. You know, on the West Coast, like my dad just raced as a hobby. We we were we just went to a lot of races, whether it was Sears Point or Laguna Seca. You kind of saw this wide variety of stuff we watched on TV. I grew up admittedly a NASCAR fan too. Like I was a huge Dale Senior fan. So yeah, um, yeah, me too. The, uh, <laughs> and that I like the experience that I had certainly going through high school was that just being around it, whether I was you know, at that point I was started, I, I was go-karting and doing some of those things, but not at like a really advanced level, but just being around motorsport made what I was doing in the classroom seem so much more relevant. And I'm curious if you can kind of speak to any particular experience you had from that perspective. Um, so one of the classes that I did take in high school, we had like an intro to engineering class and the project for that class, it was basically a class centered around a project was an electrothon racing car. And it was a super simple car. It was just um, deep cell marine batteries. And we designed and built this aluminum frame out of uh, square bar stock. Um, very rudimentary car. The throttle is actually a 5K potentiometer, <laughs> which is a little bit sketchy, actually, when I go back and think about <laughs> how we were driving this thing. Um, but I, I got to drive a little bit in that. And man, I was just so interested in um, what an interesting project that is kind of uncommon in a high school atmosphere, especially um, at that point in time. Uh, it really piqued my interest. Um, it wasn't just, you know, learning out of a textbook or, you know, memorize this equation. It was putting something that uh, I was interested to could use in something else that, that you know, was practical. I guess uh, moving on to uh, things a little bit more recently, you've had some some great experiences with Brad Goldberg and the the number eight team. Uh, I guess I'm interested how you're kind of approaching your your new role now because I guess you could take some you could take some pressure into the new role knowing you know what you've been able to achieve with the number eight team and and all the success you've had there and the the events you've won, obviously winning the Indy 500 there and and, and all of those fantastic things you've done. But I guess you could also look at it in a way of like you've had the perfect preparation to step into the the role. So maybe it's more of a, a positive thing as opposed to taking any kind of pressure into the into the role. How, how are you kind of approaching it mentally and, and how do you feel about the, the new position? Um, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit nervous. Um, I, I'm kind of approaching it how I've approached my entire career, um, meticulous note-taking, just studying like crazy, going through um, notes in excruciating detail from the last three years. And I find um, what really calms me is feeling well-prepared. So that's what I'm trying to do right now is just go through previous races and um, try and envision every scenario that might happen and feel that, you know, I have a solution prepared in my head for anything that might come up. It was a, a little bit of a flavor of your job as the assistant as well. And uh, I guess I'm kind of interested to know how well that's prepared you to take over the, the main job, because uh, I guess, you know, you can speak to this, but it, do you feel like you've basically done all of the things that a kind of lead engineer would do and that you feel like you've had, you know, you have a good grasp on the kind of tasks that you're going to have, or, or there are still kind of things that are outstanding that, that are going to be like really new for you in terms of your kind of, not just your day to day, but on a race weekend as well. Um, the rules are quite different. Um, 
you know, as an assistant engineer, I was, my focus during the weekend was more about making sure the car was running, ensuring we had good quality data coming off the car, focusing more on fuel strategy during the race than overall strategy and how the race was playing out. Um, so my focus is going to shift a lot as far as what I'm looking at during a weekend. However, I would say um, over the past year, I've been race engineering most of the, um, the hybrid events for the um, hybrid program. So I've had a lot of practice, I guess, in working on the car and working with all four of our drivers um, and now five. Uh, so I've, I've had good preparation, I think, over the last year time frame of working into that new role and kind of easing in and a lower pressure, pressure situations. Um, I think some of the newer things for me are going to be, you know, calling race strategy, which um, I've obviously had good exposure to and Brad is one of the best at it. Um, so I've had, I've had a great mentor in that aspect. And so I hope that, you know, I've learned some things along the way from him and, um, throughout the off season, I've been going through some of the past races. And if there's a point in the race that comes up where there's a decision point or something that's not totally clear, Brad sits right next to me. So I'll often stop and ask Brad, you know, like, Hey, what would you do at this point in the race? Look at, you know, here's our gap to these cars. Here's where we're going to come out if we pit um, and just kind of take the opportunity while we have time to sit down and discuss, you know, you can take a moment in the race where you might have, you know, five or 10 seconds to make a decision and you can take 10 minutes or 20 minutes and think about all the scenarios. You mentioned briefly while you were talking about the hybrid program, sort of that Ganassi's going from four cars to five cars, which is which is sort of a, a big story really in the background in the off season here, mm -hmm. particularly because it seems like there are a lot of other teams that are sort of going the opposite direction, going from four to three. We've seen that at, with Andretti. Um, we've talked at, at some length on the podcast just about the the sort of dynamics of those kinds of expansions and uh, reductions. You know, obviously the the main part of it that that gets discussed in terms of a growing team is just making sure that you that the team has the bandwidth to cover their bases um, in that kind of situation. We hear from everybody within the paddock and from paddocks outside of IndyCar, how hard it is to come by talent these days, uh, whether that be engineering, your engineering staff or mechanics. So I'm just curious from the inside, how that process has seemed like it's going, what the sort of plan was, um, you know, from, from Ganassi's point of view, we, we would look at it from the outside and say, well, they wouldn't do it if they didn't feel prepared to do it. Um, so I'm curious, just, you know, if you can give us a little insight into how that's been, been going. Yeah, I think, um, we're well prepared for expansion. Uh, in 2020, we added the third car, which I was hired, you know, to work on the third car, the eight with Marcus Erickson. And then we expanded again to four with Jimmy Johnson, which became uh, Marcus Erickson's ride, or excuse me, Marcus Armstrong's ride. Um, and I think that maybe there was some skepticism even at those points that we would be competitive with a third car. And lo and behold, Marcus Erickson comes out, wins races, does really well in the third car. Um, we add the fourth car program and same thing. I don't think, you know, people expected us to be competitive with four cars. And I think that looking at Marcus Armstrong's performance over the last year as a rookie, he did exceedingly well. That team operated very well. Um, so I think that we've been very successful. Um, we've approached it the right way. And 
Uh, I expect to see nothing less with the fifth guard program because we've approached it in a similar way. And uh, we've kind of been through that expansion process twice now in recent years. Um, I think that we have good depth of talent within the building. So that really is an asset to us to be able to support that fifth car. As you said, um, you know, talent's hard to come by. It's difficult to find people with good experience that are qualified to do the very specific jobs that we need to do. Um, I think we're very fortunate that we have a lot of those people that sit in this building that, you know, are available to, to fill those positions. That's just like a little off the cuff on that. You know, I'm, I'm curious to talk to, you know, whether it's drivers or engineers or mechanics, just the, the kind of idea of being able to operate in some different disciplines within motorsport is always like an interesting and exciting kind of topic. You know, we talk about it from the driver point of view a lot, like guys that want to go do the 24 hours of Daytona or want to go do Bathurst or whatever, go race something on dirt or whatever. And, and Ganassi, Chip Ganassi Racing is one of the teams that for as long as I can remember has always had, you know, other things outside of like, if you viewed IndyCar as being maybe the core business or the core racing championship or discipline that Ganassi, you know, is consistently doing, they've always got something else, whether it be, you know, sports cars or extreme of late of the last, you know, couple of years. Is that, do you view that to be, I, I, I suppose it's kind of an intangible thing, but, um, you know, just something that piques people's interest about coming to work at Chip Ganassi Racing, just that there's maybe these sort of different avenues of ways that you can scratch a different type of itch, maybe um, here and there. I'm curious if that factored into your decision making at all. Um, it's just, it seems like an interesting, it seems like an interesting place to work from that point of view, that there's some different things going on. Um, you know, it was something that was interesting to me when I was uh, making my decision in 2020, what I was going to do, um, just because there's kind of room to move around. If you wanted to make a lateral move or try something different, you can make that move without having to give up your whole career or, you know, to give up your seniority or, you know, to have to learn to work with a whole new group of people. Um, if you decided that, you know, like, hey, I really just can't travel anymore. I still want to work in racing. You know, we have a good group of designers. You know, we have a group of simulation people. So there's roles that would allow you to maybe step away from traveling or step down in traveling or like, let's say, I don't know, maybe you'd have to be crazy, but let's say you didn't want to work in IndyCar anymore. And you just wanted to go try something different for a couple of years. You know, you could move laterally over to the sports car program without having to move you know, to a completely different organization. And that sort of stability um, for me was important. And I think it is to other people as well, uh, that you're not going to have to pack up your whole life and try and start over somewhere new that may or may not work out. Um, you've got continuity within one place to, you know, build your career over time. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, maybe taking it back to IndyCar more specifically, we did a tech special recently we took a bunch of audience questions. We had another engineer, Charlie Ping, on board with us who has a sort of a, a broad spectrum of um, you know, of of experience in a lot of different places. Um I, I'm curious, we talked a lot about, you know, dampers come up a lot in the context of IndyCar because everybody sort of knows it's this black magic that's going on behind the <laughs> scenes. I'm curious. So we'll, we'll put that to the side. If there's something else that's sort of uh maybe an underappreciated 
aspect of performance in in IndyCar that that is not so obvious uh, to the outside is something that you know all the teams are spending a lot of time on. Um, what would you think that would be, or or a couple of things maybe? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Putting you on the spot, <laughs> you have to think quickly. <laughs> um. Honestly, I think one of the differentiators is um, calling strategy. It's something that is a very specific skill and something that some people are much better than others at and um, something that I'm going to strive to to be better than others at. Um, one of the things as an assistant engineer that I think has served me well is um, building our fuel program that we use in-house and um, kind of built that scope so that it was uh, transferable over to our INSA program. So everyone's kind of using that same fuel strategy program. Um, I think your ability to see the scope of a race and um, make good quality decisions based on calculated risk uh, is, is kind of what it's kind of intangible almost because um, people look at the result of a race and say like, well, that ended well, so that was a good decision or that ended poorly, so that was a bad decision. And I think that that's a dangerous way of thinking. You have to be able to, de to decouple your decision outcome from your decision quality. You can make a great decision based on the information you have and still have a poor outcome. Um, so I think that's a, that's a, difficult skill to have because you really only develop it in high pressure situations and you have, you know, 17 chances a year to do it. Um, so I think that's my number one would be um, strategy calls. Strategy is an interesting one because you don't necessarily, like if you want to be an engineer, you go to, you go to college and learn the principles of, of engineering, right? And you can, you can study and there's a lot you can do to kind of prepare yourself, even if it's not necessarily motorsport specific. You can, you can give yourself the tools to to do that job. But with with like, with IndyCar strategy, like knowing which cars to be picking up and being able to judge the gaps and just basically kind of computing so much information at once across so many different cars and and keeping an eye on so many different things. It's not really something that you can necessarily just sit and learn instantly. Right. It's something that I guess you know it takes a long time to adapt to. And it develops over time. And I think, honestly, some people it just comes naturally to and other people um, maybe never really, never really get it. <laughs> You're in the right team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, just because it's it's popped into my head, you were talking about the fuel strategy, um, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the the system that you guys have come up with to help identify fuel strategy throughout the race. I'm curious, like it seems, we, we've talked to a few drivers about this even, that it has seemed like tire degradation has played a much more significant role in how you think about strategy over the last couple of years in particular. Um, and maybe that's maybe that's to do with the tires. Maybe that's just a function of IndyCar getting so close. You know, there's some new tracks that have been in the mix that, you know, whatever. So I'm not going to take a swing at like exactly why that has been the case, but it has seemed to become more of a trend. Um, I'm curious if that's something that you guys kind of have a algorithm for of sorts in addition to, you know, the fuel strategy or, or is that something that, you know, I, I mean, I, I could imagine also that there are a lot of situations where you just don't have enough data on a particular weekend going into the event to really know, 
um, and it's a more significant variable. So uh, I'm curious how you guys think about that, given that it feels like it's become more of a factor. Um, I agree. It, it's definitely a big factor in, in the racing that we've had recently. Um, and it's something that plays a lot into your strategy because you have to not only plan um, your stints on which tire, but you have to plan, you know, when do you want to be fast? Uh, because your opportunities to pass people are kind of contingent on, you know, what is your delta to the car in front of you need to be to actually get by them? Because you can be faster and not be able to get by. So, um, looking at your race from a holistic view, um, when are you, when are you going to be able to make passes? When are you going to be able to make hay? Um, Yes, we look at tire fall off during the race, and I'll stop short of saying exactly how. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but yes, we look at it um, very carefully, and uh, we do study it. And it, it is very difficult. It's challenging when you come back to a track if the track surface has changed or if the ambient conditions are different, um, you know, if the tire you know, even if you're coming back with the same tire, it was produced at a different time of year, it could be slightly different. Um, there's a lot of different factors that influence that. So even if you're coming back to the same race a year later with theoretically the same tire, your fall off characteristics could be wildly different. And that really influences your race. And you have to be able to react during a race, you know, if, if the result that you're getting is different from what you expected. Um, so you need to know that pretty early on if if you're seeing, you know, a fall off curve that's different from what you thought you were going to get um, and, and be able to make a decision how to basically salvage your race or have a contingency plan. Um, we normally try and warm up to, you know, run long enough to kind of know what the tires are going to do so that we can have a plan going to the race uh, based on, you know, how long we think the tires are going to last. But it's always kind of a moving target. Um based on, you know, what the ambient conditions are in the race and, um, how hard you push. And, you know, sometimes you just get a set of tires that acts a little different than the others and that's life. So you, you just kind of got to roll with it. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. You've, you've been working with Marcus like for the you know for a period of time here. He strikes me as somebody who, like, you can rely on to be pretty like consistent over the course of a you know of various stints. Maybe like doesn't strike me as somebody who has a driving style who's like really harsh on tires, equipment, you know these kinds of things. But I'm curious. It, we've we have certainly seen in some races, and and we have the benefit of looking at these things kind of like you know, after the fact that the, you know, so, so with the benefit of hindsight of some drivers, just like, you know, going ham at the beginning of a stint and you're kind of watching it thinking like, do you know, does, do they know something that like, we don't about what's going on here? Like when when you're watching, you have kind of this more complete picture of like, that seems, seems like this is gonna like backfire. So I, I guess I'm, I'm curious. just watching, licking my chops. Yeah, right. Okay, so I'm <laughs> so I'm curious from from your perspective, maybe looking at it from not not strictly from working with Marcus, but just more generally. Like, do you feel how, how much can the engineer and the you know and the timing stand help in that situation in terms of you know maybe maybe being a good and and that this all comes down to trust and the communication that you have with your driver and how much they're going to listen versus just kind of doing what they feel is right in the moment and 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 we're getting into the nitty-gritty stuff of like what ends up meaning that you're winning races and instead of you know finishing third or fourth or 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 eighth or ninth sometimes but i'm just curious you know kind of what your perspective is from the timing stand in those kind of situations um, trying to relay that information, make sense of that data in a way that is going to have an impact on the driver to understand like a scope that maybe they don't see. I would say in general, um, at Chip Ganassi Racing, all of our drivers are exceptional at having patience, um, saving tires, and knowing when it's time to push. Uh I think there's some drivers in the field um, who maybe don't manage that as well and um, maybe need some extra coaching on um, on backing off a little bit. Um, I'm kind of happy. I'm kind of happy. Um, it, it benefits us to to see that. Um, there, there's a, a driver attitude, a driver trust point of view that you have to look at um, and Marcus and I have spoken about it already many times. Um, you you have to have the mindset going to the race that you know you're gonna you're gonna maybe get stuck behind someone and being you know three inches behind you know the rear wing for the entire stint is gonna do nothing but eat your front tires up. Um, so either pass them or back off and save your tires, save some fuel, um, and it it's on you on the timing stand to recognize that um, because obviously we're in a lower pressure situation, you know, sitting on the timing stand and sitting in the seat in the car um, to remind them if that situation comes up or watching the gaps on track, like, Hey, either, you know, either pass them or back off, you know, Hey, we'll let you know when it's time to push or, you know what, we're going to get them in the pit cycle. You just got to be patient. So it's a, it's a repetitive message that we're saying every race they're hearing it often. Um, 
be patient. We'll tell you when it's time to push. And when it's push time, then, then it's time to use up your tires. Um, and the, the other important part of that is having a plan going into the race. So if you know what your fuel window is and you know about when you're expecting to pit, you know, if you've got to make these tires last 30 laps, you have to start the stint knowing, hey, I'm going to make these last 30 laps. So, you know, I can't be 15 laps into a stint and have my rear tires completely gone. You know, when we get to 25 laps and you still got a little bit of margin left, then you can start pushing. JR, we definitely asked ask the person from the wrong team that question, I think. <laughs> I know. No, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, <laughs> uh, I mean, like Dixon or, you know, Erickson, you know, Polo. I mean, for God's Polo, sake. Polo got, famously like, the, bottom yeah, tires. The, the top, yeah. top three of the top four. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you see the gap charts and you, and you watch some of the cars start to tank and that's when you really start to get the grin on your face. Like that's, you know, 20 laps in a stint is when we start eating people up. Like, okay, maybe we don't look like the fastest car for the first two or three laps, but 20 laps into a stint, we're going to get by him. I'm curious as well, just lastly on tires, because I don't want to spend the whole hour talking to you about tires because that'd be very boring for you. But the uh, the the difference between drivers really interests me as well in the IndyCar context, because I guess if you're looking at something like Formula One, you've got two cars and they tend to develop in a certain direction and then the drivers are responsible for driving the car in the fastest, fastest possible way, right? Like the, the, the kind of the car setup is in a way defined by the engineers and the people who develop the car. Whereas with IndyCar, you've got, a, well, at least it feels like from the outside, you've got a bit more freedom to give the driver a little bit more of what they want. Um, you can have different driving styles between cars and you can kind of, you know, tweak to, to suit each driver. But I guess when you're trying to, when you're trying to analyze things like tire wear and stuff like that, it must be quite difficult sometimes when you've got a driver who's got a different driving style to the others and trying to kind of like marry all of that together is is that kind of solved by the fact that each each team has an individual strategist and an individual engineer so you're kind of you're all responsible for your own car and, and you kind of move forward in in that way um man that's it's kind of a loaded question because um the answer is kind of it depends um you know i've dealt with two drivers now um who have come from the very european way of thinking um Marcus Erickson came from F1 and um, Marcus Armstrong came up through um, Formula 3, Formula 2. Um, and they both kind of have the mindset of you give me the car and I just drive it. And what I say doesn't matter. And you you really have to coach that out of them early on. Um, they're not used to having to give feedback. So the feedback that Marcus Erickson gave his first, you know, year, you really had to pull out of him like, Hey, what is the car doing? Yeah. It's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit understeery. It's like, okay, where is it understeery? Low speed, high speed, um, middle of the corner. Uh, so you really have to pull the information out of them. Um, once you get the information, then you can work on the setup to suit them. Um, and so when we send the cars out, the setups might not all be the same between four cars. We haven't, you know, collaborated and said like, this is the setup. This is theoretically the fastest car because the way that Scott Dixon drives is very different from the way Alex Below drives and is different from the way that Marcus Armstrong drives. So they all kind of need a bit something different. Um, that all being said, uh, there are certain things that you do that 
will eat the tires up. And so there is a bit of coaching going on as far as saving tires and driving styles. Um, we have some metrics that we look at that will tell us, you know, you're using the tires more here and here. And um, we think that over a stint that, you know, you're going to get two less laps than, you know, say Alex is going to. So um, we do actively coach our drivers on um, where and how to save tires. So it's a bit of a give and take, you know, the setup obviously affects it, but there's also certain driving styles that, you know, don't help your situation. Sure. I guess to, to change topics a little bit, I'm kind of interested in how you felt the kind of announcement of your, you know, your new role went. And I, I guess IndyCar claimed that you're the the fourth female lead engineer on a on an IndyCar team, which uh, I guess is a, you know, a nice thing to go in the in the history books for you. But at the same time, I, I guess you'd much rather that headline be like you're the first Angela Ashmore to be a, a lead IndyCar engineer, right? So I, I guess I'm kind of interested in how you feel about the the kind of women in motorsport narrative and and how that kind of plays out for you because of course you just want to be treated equally and you want to feel like you're you know an equal member of, of any team that you're on and that your success is treated the same as as anybody else but I guess there's people out there like JR who has a, a young daughter and I guess you also feel a an element of wanting to put yourself out there and be visible so that you know young women can can see that your position is obtainable as a as a job and as a as a career in the future. So, uh, how do you balance that? And, and guess I guess how do you feel about that whole narrative and how it works for you? Honestly, you took the words right out of my mouth because there's there's half of me that says I just want to do my job and be successful yeah. and have my success treated in the same way as it is for everyone else. But there's another part of me that says, man, there's some young girls out there that really need to see a strong female being successful. And, you know, I was that young girl once who was watching TV, watching the races on Sunday. And the only women that I saw were the ones that were on the driver's arms. Um, they were never in a technical position. They were never on a pit crew. They were never on a timing stand. Um, and obviously it's come a long way since then, but um, it's obviously not quite progressed where it needs to yet. Um, so I'm happy to be part of that success. It does put a little bit of extra pressure on, I think, because, um, obviously I want to do a good job and, um, yeah, when you do well, you do well very publicly. And when you have a bad weekend, you have a bad weekend very publicly. Um, and that that's just part of what comes with the job. Um, I'm obviously with a great team and a great position for success. I have all the tools that I need to do my job well. Um, and I think that I've been well-prepared. I have all the experience that I need. So, um, I think that I'm well prepared to be successful this year. And I, I hope that I am. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to do a good job and I, I want, I want young women to see that success, um, and feel like they're a part of it and feel encouraged. And so, um, I think a lot of that pressure I put on myself, um, and also, I'm just extremely competitive, like most other people are who do this job. Um, I uh, I have a quote that I always look back on. Um, you uh, you have to always believe that you'll be the best, but never believe that you have done so. <laughs> and I, I think about that pretty often. <laughs> like I do genuinely believe that I will be the best person that's ever done this job, but um, I'm not there yet. So. Um, that's what I'm always working towards. I want to be the best 
the best race engineer that's ever done this job. And I'm hope that down the line sometime I can be remembered that way, but um, we'll just get through the first season first. <laughs> it does It does feel like we've had like a, a decent period here where we've had things like Pareto Autosport happen and, and those guys getting to the Indy 500. And it does feel like there's more women visible in the paddock. I don't know if that's something you share. And it, do you feel like that's something that, you know, it's an atmosphere inside the IndyCar series as a whole at the moment that kind of, is helping that to happen a little bit more that, that it's a welcoming environment and that you, you know, you are able to, to move freely in these kind of positions and not worry about your gender or, you know, anything like that. I think culturally IndyCar is an excellent environment. Um, from where I came from, I didn't necessarily feel that way. Um, I never really felt like my gender had anything to do with, you know, where, where I was, uh, able to move within the paddock, um, which is a great thing. So, um, I think IndyCar has moved pretty far along. Um, there are some key players and I always, I always give a shout out to Kira Kristalik because, um, she's kind of the leader of the pack. She's been around for a while and she made me feel so welcome when I came into IndyCar. And so I always have to remember to thank her for making me feel that way because, um, I didn't always feel that way. And, uh, it makes a big difference just to have somebody reach out and say like, Hey, I'm really glad you're here. Cara is definitely someone I want to get on the pod at some point. She's a, she's a fantastic spokesperson for IndyCar as a whole, generally. So we'll definitely have a look at getting her on the pod. Anyway, uh, let's wrap up with Marcus Armstrong and, and how you kind of feel his season's going to go. Um, he had a good rookie year last year. He's obviously come from from F2, like you said. He he knows how to baby a tyre after uh, looking after Pirelli's in F2. Um, and I know speaking to him at the start of last season, he was amazed at how much kind of like how much of a role he felt he had in the team. Um, I know a lot of teams use the kind of term like the driver is like the quarterback of the team. And I think Marcus is, as, as you were kind of talking about before, maybe not used to giving as much of his own opinion about things or maybe deciding the direction of where a team goes or where the car setup goes or, or his feedback and, and stuff like that. I know he was kind of surprised by how much kind of say he had in in everything. Um, just seeing him develop from from the outside over the course of last season, what are you kind of... I mean, I don't know if you're the kind of person who likes to set like number goals or, or things like that, but what, what are you kind of expecting to see from him and what be, if we were talking at the end of next season, what would be, what would have been a sex, successful year for Marcus, do you think? Um, I don't like to set number goals, um, but we do have two goals as a team. And number one is to win the Indianapolis 500. And obviously we have the cars that are capable of doing that. Um, and number two is to win the championship. Um, and so what I've spoken to Marcus about uh, is just consistency through the season. I think that's the biggest thing for us. We need to qualify well. Uh, we need to be transferring into the second, third group and qualifying. Um, when you qualify at the front, it makes your race a whole lot easier. Um, and so that's one of the things that he struggled with last year. Obviously, he was very fast. Um, he has the speed to get the job done. So that's not a worry for me. Um we just need to qualify well, and then that makes our racing a lot easier. Um, and then being consistent among um, races. Um, one of the things that we spoke about is, um, man, if you, if you just finished eighth, which is not like really a particularly great finish, if we finished eighth at every race, like where do you think that you'd finish in the championship if you finished eighth every race? I know, I know it was Alex Blow's worst finishing position, wasn't it, last year? So. I guess like behind Alex Plow, but still quite well in the championship. <laughs> yeah. yeah, certainly inside the top five. I would yeah, think. I would say so. Top five for sure. Yeah, and I think if we finish inside the top five of the championship, that would be an excellent year for him. Um, obviously, we want to go out and win races. That's our goal. 
Um, but being realistic about it, if we can be consistent, um, try and be, you know, top six or better in every race, um, those are realistic, great goals. And I think that's going to get us to the goal at the end of the season, which is to put ourselves in a position for a championship. So, you know, if you're, if you're shooting to hit an average of P6, that means, you know, if you're at the front of the race every weekend, you, you're eventually going to win one. You know, you're going to be on the podium because, you know, some people are going to fall out. There's going to be attrition. Um, obviously, things happen. You have mechanical failures every once in a while. So you're going to have a bad race here and there. But um, we're just aiming for consistency to qualify well. And I think that's going to get the job done. Well, Angela, thanks so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it. We're sorry we've bombarded you with questions about tires and stuff like that. But it's been great to talk to her an IndyCar engineer. We don't get to do it as often as we would like to on the pod, so you can probably tell how excited JR and I to uh, fire a load of engineering questions at you. And it's great to to hear your thoughts on everything. So we wish you all the best of the season. I hope the the kind of debut season goes well with, with Marcus and I hope we can uh, speak to you some point later in the season as well. It'd be great to have you back and chat about how things are going. Yeah, hopefully you can talk to me as a race winner soon. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks very much, Angela. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. So that was Angela Ashmore. Great to have her on the show. I uh, genuinely mean it that we hope we can have her back later in the season. Um, some fascinating insights into into Ganassi as a whole. Uh, JR, um, I don't know about you, but I just kind of felt like a, an immediate sense of like gravitas in the way that Angela kind of talks about everything to do with IndyCar generally, but just specifically some of the engineering questions. Just it felt like she was always maybe holding a little bit back in terms of like some little Ganassi secrets, but also. Um, yeah, just like the the level of kind of insight we got there was really cool. And I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that she said that really resonated with me was just, you know, basically to that she feels calmer when she feels the most prepared. And I think that that's that's something that, you know, whatever your line of work is, you you sort of come to know that feeling um, you know, that, that when you're not quite prepared for something or you, you don't feel like you have your bases covered, you're a little more anxious about whatever you're, whatever you're kind of taking on next. And, 
Um, you know, some of us, some of us gravitate towards roles or jobs where there's always a lot of unknown. So you're, you just always kind of have to fight against that. But, um, you know, at the same time, you kind of, you know, learn over time that there's always a way to be a little more prepared for what you have coming up next. So, um, you know, I think outside of just her, her skill and, and sort of experience and, um, you know, I guess the, the predisposition that's required to be good at this job. Um, you definitely come away from that interview thinking like, okay, I feel like she's kind of got this covered, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, and, you know, obviously she's working with Marcus, you know, in his first full-time season. So they'll have some growing pains just because of that, but um, it'll be great to watch their progress over the year and, and like you said, hopefully be able to, you know, hopefully be able to chat with with both of them to kind of get a check in on how things are going. Yeah, I know just just quickly before we go, I know you've always been a big supporter of, you know, women in, in motorsport getting the opportunity when they've, you know, when they've had the chance. And, uh, you know, Peretti, you've spoken at length about how, you know, how cool you found all of that program. And, and now obviously being a dad to a, a little girl as well. I mean, it, it must feel like, you know, it, it's it's if we're having this conversation it's not perfect in terms of the the level of diversity in, in the series but it does feel like IndyCar is a welcoming paddock and you know to be able to to have that feeling I'm sure you'll want to take your daughter to the paddock one day when when she's old enough to to remember it and you know there's there's a lot of women out there who could be doing roles in in motorsport that aren't so to have people like Angela around is you know it's it's not nice that they sometimes have to go through extra scrutiny or they have to have these conversations about being women in motorsport when actually they just want to talk about being competitors. But it does feel like there's a a kind of bigger win in, in all of that that they are, you know, represented. Yeah, I think when I think about it through the eyes of, you know, a father to a daughter hmm. now that you, whether it be, you know, a, a female driver like a Simona or a Tatiana Calderon or, or, mm. or whoever, um, or female engineer like Angela, I think, I think what the, the little tweak on the lens that I have for it now is you kind of just, you want for those women in those positions to have the air about them that they're just there to fucking go do their thing, you know? And that that's what, that's what I want my daughter to see, other women doing um in whatever whatever space it might be whether it's motorsport or something else but yeah um you know and, and so i feel like some of that is predicated on having some women in those roles that just have that disposition about them you know that they're hmm. you know and, and angela seems seems very much came across as one of those that she doesn't really care you know like you can tell that she senses there's maybe this external you know, view or pressure or, or whatever, um, you know, like a, that, that she may be judged in some way differently than, than the average, uh, male that's in one of those roles. But, um, you know, I think, I think a, a lot of progress happens when you just see that confidence kind of come from the inside. And so it's going to, it's, it will continue to take, we've seen this, throughout sports history, whether it be, you know, the desegregation of major league baseball or, you know, whatever that it, it sort of takes, it takes some people doing an extremely good job in high pressure situations and having that confidence about them to kind of break down people's, you know, view of whether there's some difference between a 
you know, male or female or, you know, of different race or whatever, doing different types of things. Um, but you know, I, my hope certainly is that that continues to happen and that we could, it's, it's part of our job as, as people within the sport to like empower those people just to be themselves and do their thing. Um, because I think that the more that that happens, the more, the more it will be obvious that having more females on your team is actually just a competitive advantage. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it was great to chat with her. And, um, you know, certainly I think we look forward to seeing more young women in the paddock, uh, you know, and, and starting to work towards these kinds of roles. I mean, like you heard, like we heard from Angela, like this did not happen all of a sudden yesterday. Like there's, mm -hmm. you know, a, a decade long plus sort of trajectory, um, that she's been on to get to this point. And so, you know, I, th I think, what we're also skipping over is that whole that whole period of time um of being really one of the only women in in a role like this for for a long time up to now so um yeah it's uh, it's it's great it's really cool to see her in that spot yeah it's you know i th i think it'll just be the start of of more to come Thanks for sharing that, JR. That's all for this episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. You can head to thehighfromrace.com for all of your IndyCar news, analysis, uh, and features. Uh, I wrote one recently about Pato Awards, uh, kind of hero versus idiot approach to his racing, which are his own words, and hopefully that's a good <laughs> good insight into his his kind of approach. Uh, we've spoken about it on the pod a lot. You clarified that those were his words. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've spoken about this a lot on the podcast over the past year and like Pato's kind of, uh, you know, reaction and how he interprets things. And I, like, it's just a different approach to some other drivers where he just like accepts that some of his, some of his risks are going to make him look like an idiot and some of them are going to make him look like a hero. And he, and, and the, the, the crux of the feature is that he's like willing to live with that because he believes that, he, you know, the 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 upside is greater than the the downside to to his approach. So, would definitely definitely recommend going to read that and not just uh, judging that feature based on that one little sentence that you just heard there. Um, and thanks to Pato for making the time in a very um, well extremely busy off season to chat about that. So that was good fun. Head to the to the race to to see that. You can also go back and listen to some of our previous episodes. Um, you can definitely go back and listen to uh, the the tech special that we did uh, if you enjoyed listening to Angela talk about some of the more intricate technical aspects of of IndyCar. We did a lot of dampers and aerodynamics as well and comparing IndyCar engineering to Formula 1 as well. So you can go back and, and listen to those. Uh, we'll be back. Our next episode is with James Hinchcliffe where we'll preview uh, St. Petersburg, the, the first race of the IndyCar season, which we're both looking forward to. So that's all for this episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. The Athletic.